Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast for History, the Journal of the Historical Association. For episode 7 of our new book series, I'm joined by the wonderful Dr Jamie L.H. Goodall. She is Staff Historian at the U.S. Army Center of Military History in Washington, D.C. and a tutor at Southern New Hampshire University. Her PhD focused on the development of taste-making and material culture in Caribbean islands via commercial networks amongst pirates, smugglers and residents. Many of you may know her from her podcast, Uncork History, or her book, which is the subject of today's discussion, Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay, From the Colonial Era to the Oyster Wars. Thank you for joining us today, Jamie. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a thrill. I mean, I follow you on Twitter and I'm always <laughs> greatly entertained by seeing what snippets of work pop up. So I'm quite excited today to have a podcast entirely dedicated to pirates <laughs> piracy. So I suppose what drew you to the research for the, this particular book? So my doctoral dissertation, as you mentioned, was kind of about the early modern Atlantic Caribbean sort of more broadly. And I... I'm not really doing anything with that right now. It's kind of a hot mess. But as I was finishing it up, I was approached by an editor from the history press who had seen the abstract of my uh, dissertation project. And she was like, you know, we're really interested in expanding our series on pirates and privateers. We do regionally focused history. So you're living in Baltimore at the time. Would you be interested in writing about pirates specifically in the Chesapeake Bay? And I was like, well, you know, Donald Chomet had already done a pretty extensive book on pirates in the Chesapeake Bay, but they were more interested in a general history, something that was more digestible and, and that sort of thing. So I was like, sure, I'll, <laughs> I'll give it a shot. And it just developed into something more than I had expected it to be just because having focused on the Caribbean, you tend to focus on the more notorious pirates, Blackbeard, William Kidd. But for the Chesapeake Bay, I didn't realize just how prolific piracy and privateering was in the Bay. And so it was that which sort of drew me to to want to take on the project. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like you say, you've just pointed out two of the most notable names that we have for that area. So I think like your book is very accessible and it's really you get lost as you're going through it with the amount of figures you've got in there which we'll come up to in a minute and I'm just wondering whether you've got any follow-up projects that have spun off from this was there anything that didn't fit into the Chesapeake Bay book that you wanted to expand upon or are your new projects that are forthcoming quite separate? I did not really have anything that I didn't include in the Chesapeake book, mostly because I just kept everything relatively simple and didn't do deep dives into each of the individuals. And it was a very different structure of book for me in terms of my writing, going from a dissertation, which is, you know, very structured and you have your literature review and your chapters. This I structured more as just individual stories that you could pop in and out. Like you didn't have to read it from cover to cover. I was not making any sort of specific argument about piracy in the Chesapeake. I was just telling stories. Um, So in terms of follow-up publications, I actually have a book coming out with the History Press in May called Pirates and Privateers from Long Island Sound to Delaware Bay, which focuses primarily on the Pirates and Privateers in New York and Pennsylvania. Although, of course, the Jerseys and Delaware Uh, play a part. And the focus of that book is more academically structured, and it 
just covers the kind of colonial era, the sort of golden age of piracy that we're all most familiar with. And then I end with the American Revolution. So whereas my first book kind of covered the entire gamut from, you know, the colonial era to 1959, this is a lot more tightly focused and a more traditionally written. And then what I'm working on currently is a book on pirates in New England, but focusing primarily on Massachusetts and using Black Sam Bellamy as a microcosmic study of piracy in that region. So it'll focus specifically on the colonial era in New England. I mean, I think what you're doing is just selling yourself as the queen of pirates there. I mean, (laughs) to to be able to go and look at different areas I suppose if you do more of these studies you're going to be able to track some really interesting trends and patterns Mm -hmm. and actually give us a broader picture which I think is something that is going to be really exciting really interesting obviously for so many people who have been perhaps drawn in by like Pirates of the Caribbean or (laughs) Urban Myths and Legends those kind of things and obviously you've mentioned for Chesapeake Bay that the book is kind of a really long durée approach to it. Was that how it naturally fell? Were you always intending to do a chronological approach or were there times where you thought, oh, maybe I want to look at some biographical case studies instead of doing such a long study? When I started the Chesapeake Bay book, I, I honestly did not have a clear framework in mind just because it was my first book project technically. And so I just started by gathering all my research and seeing what had been published already. Like I said, Donald Shamet had an incredible book uh, full of uh, great resources. So as I read his book, I decided I didn't want it to be structured the way that he structured it. And he left off in the 1840s, I think, whereas I kind of took it further. But I wanted it to be more of a I don't know, like a biographical guide, if you will, like you look at the table of contents and it's not broken up necessarily by like theme or anything. It is chronological, but you see it's all individuals or crews specific to the time periods. And so you can just skip like, oh, wow, Theophilus Turner sounds really interesting. I'm going to go read about him real quick. Oh, well, I'm tired of this time period. Let me jump into the Confederate privateers, you know, so it just kind of organically happened (laughs) that way. Um, (laughs) It wasn't planned. I mean, You've mentioned, obviously, that when you look at the contents page, you can see all these figures that you picked up and you've got several of them who you outline. And I'm just wondering, like, whose story was most interesting to you? Like, was there one person in particular who, you you know, you picked up a footnote and were like, oh, my goodness, when you got into their life? And personally, I suppose, from them as well, who jumped out like you? So uh, I have two. The first is a pirate by the name of Louis Guitar, and I'm really fascinated by him, and I, I wish I had more information about him. Uh, he's probably somebody that I will, when archives open back up, try to dig deeper into, but just the fact that he was a Frenchman operating in the Chesapeake Bay, like that's not what you would anticipate, right? Like you would expect French or pirates operating, you know, throughout the Caribbean as the English, the French, the Spanish, the Dutch are fighting over territory and resources. You know, you don't, you don't anticipate a French pirate being like, oh, you know what, it'd be a really great place to uh, settle down and and disrupt shipping. The Chesapeake Bay, you know, like it's, it's not something that I personally would have considered. So I think his story is really interesting. And then my favorite story from the book 
And again, um, I, I got some information from a gentleman recently who found some additional uh, materials that I can dig into, but favorite story is about the women of the dancing Molly, because they're the only women who feature in the book because it's impossible nearly to find actual evidence of women with respect to piracy. Of course, Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed, or Chin Chi being sort of the exceptions to that rule. The Women of the Dancing Molly occurred during the Oyster Wars in the Chesapeake Bay. So we're talking like 1880s. Their husbands, or it was these three women, a wife and two daughters, and she was the wife of the captain of the boat, the Dancing Molly. And Turns out he was an oyster pirate and his crew was full of oyster pirates. And one day they were on land gathering timber, uh, taking a break from pirating their oysters when Governor Cameron of Virginia caught sight of them. And he's like, all right, the men are on land. That boat's obviously empty. Or if it's not, it's got maybe one guy on board. So this should be an easy takeover, especially because the men were on an island. So where are they going to (laughs) go? What he didn't know is that the pirate captain had brought his wife and two daughters, and it turned out that they were quite skilled seafarers, having spent a lot of time on the Dancing Molly with them. And so when the governor started firing warning shots at them, they just said, screw you, you know, and sailed into Maryland waters outside of the governor's jurisdiction. And it's particularly funny to me because the governor had brought several press members on board to chronicle his great success with the oyster wars. And <laughs> it turns out everything was a miserable failure. And here he is being outsailed, outmaneuvered by three women. Um, so it got printed quite widely in the press and shared up and down uh, the states. But it was probably the most fun story to tell. Amazing. And I'm almost not surprised that it's more difficult to find female pirates just because it's more mm-hmm. difficult to find women in history per se. But I'm wondering, did many of the figures, did they have wives and daughters that they wrote to or wrote about in their logs? Is there, or are these really like solo men Not, and you get their lives and records, but not perhaps so much of their female relatives? Yeah, so we have a couple of instances where And I forget the ship, but a pirate ship was captured and it contained a chest full of letters to and from family members to the pirates. And there's an incident where a number of men were uh, arrested for piracy and their wives petitioned the government for their release. And so we know that they did have wives and families and children. Most of these pirates are just average guys, right? Like they, they're brothers and fathers and husbands And there's a really great book that sort of breaks it down into four case studies. Uh, Daphne Giancopoulos, her book, I think it's called The Pirate Next Door. She sort of talks about how this idea that pirates are just these solo adventure-seeking swashbucklers is really an outdated understanding of these men and that most of them had really strong ties to the land they're not making an entire career out of piracy and that they're taking the the money that they've earned and they're investing it back into their communities, whether that means purchasing land or sending it back to support their families or starting businesses. And so in the book that's coming up that I are publishing, I, I talk quite a bit about this connection between the pirates and the their loved ones and sort of how this impacted, you know, the whisper network in order to, you know, 
evade capture, how it contributed to legal conundrums and that sort of thing. Because uh, I think probably the most famous example is William Kidd and his wife, Sarah Cox Ort Kidd. I might be missing a last name there. She was married quite a bit before she married Kidd. And, you know, she gets involved in the legal process trying to clear his name. So it's really interesting to think about the fact that women, even if we don't have evidence of them pirating on board a ship, we do have evidence that they had some impact on the existence and the operations of piracy and sort of its legacy. That's fascinating. And I'm really glad to hear that there is some evidence of them in the records. And you say uh, Captain Kidd's wife obviously doing and seeking redress for it. I mean, what a woman. In a sense. Yeah. <laughs> it can't have been that easy to have gone and started being involved in legal proceedings, I suppose. And I'm wondering as well, who's been, we've talked about the escape and the Molly Collie women. I'm just wondering, are they your favourite figures as well? Has there been anyone else you've come across that you've really been like, this is almost like my idol. This is someone who I've really got a huge interest that you've just fallen in love with, either in the book or just uh, in the following projects you've been working on. I have two favorite pirates, and I did touch on them sort of in in the books. The first is Steed Bonnet, or Stead Bonnet, however you want to pronounce it. I've heard it a million different ways. But he is probably one of my most favorite pirates because of how he became a pirate. Here's this guy. He is in Barbados, I believe, and he is a wealthy landowner. He's married. He's got a couple of kids. And one day he wakes up and says, this is not the life for me. And he ditches his wife and kids. He buys a boat and he hires by paying a pirate crew. Terrible way to get a pirate crew because now they expect you to continue paying them regardless of whether or not they seize any ships. Uh, So he is essentially the worst pirate in history. He's so bad that even after he teams up with Blackbeard, at one point, Blackbeard's like, you are atrocious. Stay in your cabin. Do not come out. (laughs) I will handle this. And then my second favorite is Black Sam Bellamy, who I'm about to write the book on. I did, unfortunately, uh, as I was writing the Chesapeake Bay book, relied on what turned out to be a bad source, claiming that Bellamy had been arrested with some of his crew members and was hanged. But it turns out that Bellamy was actually one of those who perished in the shipwreck. And so, you know, I guess, uh, spoiler alert, I screwed up in my first book (laughs) and I'm hoping to get to revise it eventually. But he is a really interesting figure and I'd like to know more about him, especially his alleged relationship with Mary Hallett and what that relationship looked like and how it influenced his decision to become a pirate and the identity that he sort of took on because he, much like Steve Bonnet, who was known as the gentleman pirate, Black Sam Bellamy is sort of one of those similar figures in that he's not an incredibly violent person. He is not known for, you know, persecuting or torturing people. And so he sort of evolves from a shipwreck fisher to a pirate. And and I'd like to sort of track his progress more in detail. I think it's great when we've actually got enough evidence to do those kind of like biographical studies and unpick Mm -hmm. things a bit more. And I mean, I think it's always the thing as well that sometimes we just come across sources after we've finished or, you know, corrections and so on. So 
least with the Bellamy book, you're going to have this opportunity to get his wider story out there and discuss it in more detail. And again, coming back to the Chesapeake Bay book, I'm just wondering how you handled looking at it over this long period in terms of did you decide to just start the research chronologically? Was it very bitty when you were looking at it? Like, How did you approach looking at it that, in that way? Yeah, so I hadn't anticipated covering as much time as I actually did, but as I structured the book sort of in these biographical little case studies, I realized that I had the space within the book to cover a longer period of time. Because with the history press, you're pretty limited in terms of the number of words you can include because they don't want the books too long, because general readers are not looking for, you know, 300 page tomes or want something a little more digestible. I researched it chronologically, so it made it natural to write it chronologically. And what I ended up doing was I chose the colonial era to start with because it seemed the most familiar to most people, like it is covering that golden age. And then I was like, how else do I sort of break this up? And I was like, you know, the easiest way to do that is in terms of conflicts. So that's what drew me to then doing a chapter on the American Revolution, the War of 1812, the American Civil War, and then finally the Oyster Wars. So the colonial chapter is a little different in that it's not focused on a specific conflict. Um, Rather, it's just a, a general era. But I was intrigued to learn when I was researching the oyster wars, I was sort of under the impression like, okay, it happened in the 1880s, you know, and then that's it. But I found that it actually occurred intermittently off and on from the official oyster wars in the 1880s to these sort of unofficial skirmishes between oyster pirates and the Department of Natural Resources Police Forces of Virginia and Maryland that lasted all the way into 1959. And I was just astounded that I was like, there were oyster pirates in 1959. This is amazing. Apparently there were some more skirmishes in the sixties, but this, the, the death of Berkeley muse in 1959 sort of marked the end of these so-called oyster wars and these particular skirmishes. So I just went chronologically. I, sort of kept my focus that way. And I found that it was easier to do that to cover such a long period than it was for me to sort of bounce back and forth, uh, work on, you know, this chapter, then this chapter. So I really had to keep myself focused to be able to cover such a long period. And that's incredible. I mean, when I was reading the book and, you know, you said about 1880s, that seems so far away in terms of still having pirates but 1959 and I suppose in a way you still call criminals at sea in a sense pirates now and in terms of I think we've had instances in the last 20 years perhaps around Africa and for example um so I suppose it's thinking of the fact that the nature of piracy and how we envision it has changed but I guess, again, for many people, we kind of think of piracy as how it might have been in the colonial era and, Mm -hmm. again, tracking how it's developed and changed over time. And I'm wondering with these figures you've looked at, were there some kind of, like, common threads between them, common backgrounds, and did they change from period to period as to the kind of people who became pirates? Was there any consistency there, or were they all very different? Right. So I found in the colonial era that the vast majority of individuals who became pirates 
were sort of the lower to middling class uh, in the sense of like, we don't have like specific class constructs in the way that we will in later periods, but they're not these, on average, they're not these desperately poor individuals who have no other recourse. Of course, those people existed in significant numbers, but the vast majority are just average guys. And they tended to be individuals who worked in some sort of maritime trade, or they were either current or former sailors with the Royal Navy. They might have had experience on a merchant ship. A lot of these pirates are becoming pirates through acts of mutiny on their Royal Naval vessels or their merchant vessels. And what I found is that the majority of pirates, again, did not make an entire career out of piracy. You know, you're not pirating for 15 years kind of thing. On average, most pirates did one or two, what we would call ventures. So, you know, several months out at sea at any given time, they would do that a couple of times and then they would essentially retire and go back to whatever trade it was that they were participating in before just because they recognized not only how difficult the life of a pirate was, you know, you only get paid if you successfully attack a ship, but also just how dangerous it was because it depended on who you came across. Uh, We have this idea of pirates as these incredibly violent individuals who just cut down anyone who got in their way. They would torture people for information. And yes, there were plenty of pirates who did that. But you've got to figure that it was in a pirate's best interest to have a crew surrender to them as opposed to fight them. Because, you know, if you had to fight a crew, not only do you risk damage to the ship and the goods that you're trying to seize, but you also risk injury and death to your crew members, which is not a good thing when you have such a scant crew anyways. So if you had a reputation of being incredibly violent or, you know, killing everyone you came across, then a crew is more likely to fight back because they're going to recognize, well, death's the end game anyways. So uh, it was better to have a reputation of sort of mercy or I I guess congeniality in a way of like letting people go when you've taken what you wanted, um, allowing people to join you if they want, um, And I mean, sometimes pirates did press people into service, especially if the person was in a position that was very beneficial, like a surgeon or a navigator. And so that's kind of the the commonality there is that very short lived careers, they tended to come from lower middling backgrounds. They mostly tended to have wives and families of some kind. And The majority of the ones who operated, at least in the Chesapeake Bay and and along the North American coastline, are English uh, or identify as English, Um, whereas in the Caribbean, you have a greater variety of, of individuals. You have French and Dutch and Spanish. You're not seeing as much diversity in terms of national or ethnic background. I will say probably the one of the most important things that I talk about when it comes to piracy, I didn't get to cover too much in the Chesapeake Bay book, just by virtue of how it's structured, but the influence of piracy on slavery. And so that's something that like is really important to me because we've had this idea for a very long time that pirates are these proto egalitarian, proto democratic floating societies. 
And some of them were absolutely like every crew member had an equal share. They all voted on everything from who the captain would be at any given time to where they would sail. And several pirate crews welcomed black individuals on their ships as equals. But we have so much evidence that pirates actively participated in the transatlantic trade of enslaved peoples, treating those human beings in bondage as commodities, just like any other commodity. And that they would often, if they didn't sell the enslaved individual, they would force them to work on the ship. And they are not an equal. They are still enslaved, essentially. And there's debates about, for example, the Black men who existed on Blackbeard's ship. Were they free? Were they enslaved? What role are they actually playing? And it's really hard to get at some of those questions since most pirates are not leaving detailed or specific records So I I think that's one of the aspects in researching these pirates that stood out the most to me is their active participation in that trade. I think that's really important and fascinating as well. And it is a really important thing to highlight. And I think it's interesting that you say you picked up on the fact that there were some pirates who were of colour and that perhaps they were treated equally. But I think it's one of those threads that you say you do need to draw together and actually going back a little bit when you're talking about the dangers of piracy itself in terms of obviously fighting and risk of the ship that they're seizing but also the fact that it wasn't necessarily a safe life anyway you've got the risk of shipwreck you've got unstable income so you might not necessarily mm-hmm. know when you're going to have substantive feed um, or resources and again that's obviously the idea of like well you could plunder it but what if you're not a successful pirate and what if mm-hmm. you fail to seize or take anything for a while I think there's still something perhaps with this kind of romanticized notion mm-hmm. we have around piracy that perhaps we still need to unpick a little bit more but um, yeah I, uh, I remember when I published uh, the op-ed in the made by history section of the Washington Post I It's very difficult for me studying pirates typically to find a current event that I can sort of, you know, base my research and connect it and and publish these op-eds like so many of my brilliant colleagues, uh, like Lindsay Travinsky, she studies presidents and her first book was about cabinets of the presidents. And so she's able to like make these direct connections between her historical research and these current events and If you've not read Lindsay Travinsky's work, you have to do that. Brilliant. But I tend to have a harder time with that. Like there's not often stories related to piracy that I can connect to. And so for the Super Bowl between Tampa Bay and I think it was the Chiefs at the time, I was like, oh, perfect. A connection between past and present. And all I did was talk about the history of piracy in Tampa and sort of what it meant to be a pirate or in their case, a buccaneer. And that was it. I thought, all right, this is easy peasy, like no big deal. Apparently (laughs) people read into that way more than I actually wrote. And they were like, oh, cancel culture, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like you've taken it too far. Tampa Bay shouldn't change their name. And And I was like, I, I never said they should. Uh, I happen to like the name Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I think it's fun. I'm just pointing out that, you know, we tend to romanticize certain figures that either A, maybe shouldn't be as romanticized as we've, you know, made them, but are also, you know, 
problematic in, in many different ways. Like, is it offensive to pirates? No, right? Like they're not a group in the sense of being offended. It's, you know, it's not like the chiefs or, or the braves or, or any of those where you have an actual population of people who are impacted by the use of those names for teams. I was just trying to offer some historical context for the Buccaneers and I can't tell you the amount of vitriol and hate and rape and death threats I received over that very short op-ed. And I was like, well, I never thought researching pirates would be so controversial, but apparently it can be. It definitely can, I think. And it's, <laughs> it's one of those things with public history where obviously we want to inform the public, we want to give some wider situation, but by doing so, you know, by writing op-eds or short pieces, you know, we almost want to encourage people to then go and, like say, either read a book, dig a bit more mm-hmm. into it, have some critical thinking about the topic we're writing about but sometimes it does really just provoke people the other way (laughs) they take it as you know almost like a gospel truth or assassination of facts perhaps and it doesn't actually encourage them to think a bit more widely it almost encourages (laughs) people to close it and get defensive which I don't think is ever what we want to do as historians we want people to you know open up and engage and think a bit more so yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I ended up in the Daily Mail, which was never one of my life's aspirations. So. I don't think anyone ever wants to end up in the Daily Mail. But uh, really shocking, unfortunately, that uh, that was the outcome of what, like you say, what you hoped was going to be a more provocative piece, but not for those reasons. Yeah. <laughs> giving a bit more context. And... I know, straight back up, so you've spoken about this forthcoming book you've got coming out on uh, mm-hmm. the new, new York piracy and so on. And I'm wondering if perhaps you can just give us like a little teaser, perhaps, of like mm-hmm. another figure that you've come across whilst you were researching that, that you might want to highlight to some of our listeners or something to look out for in that book. Okay, yeah. Um, so in the book on Pirates in the Mid-Atlantic, One of the most prominent figures in that region is William Kidd. And he's, you know, obviously very well-known pirate, but the amount of money and luxury goods that Kidd brought into New York specifically to the governor at the time, which I believe was Benjamin Fletcher and the merchants, like, I can't even think of his name now. Anyways, a very important merchant who helped settle Madagascar by sending Adam Baldridge there. (laughs) So he's, you know, he's a really interesting figure in that he starts out as a pirate hunter. He, that is what he is hired to do. Uh, He has made his way into the good graces of the New York colonial government, which was interesting given the very tumultuous time period of this shift between Uh, the Dutch to the English, and then this like debate between the different factions within English New York and and how the colony would operate and and that sort of thing. And the relationship between Kidd and Fletcher is probably one of the more interesting relationships. But another thing that stood out to me when I was researching for this particular book is a pirate who 
I believe it was Governor Markham of Pennsylvania. You would think I would know this since I just wrote it. Um, but Governor Markham, I'm pretty sure of Pennsylvania, his daughter married an alleged pirate. And they were described as conveying these pirates from place to place and, and offering them space at their table and, you know, all manners of charges against these merchants and these government officials that I thought made for really interesting sort of storytelling in terms of the colonial section of this forthcoming book, I focus a lot on the various governors and their collusion with the pirates or not, especially Lord Bellamont's sort of war against the pirates and his influence coming from New England into the Mid-Atlantic and the role he played in trying to stamp out piracy in the region. And so I think people will find that dichotomy very interesting in terms of like, those who supported piracy and why versus, you know, somebody like Lord Bellamont who could have benefited personally from piracy, but somehow, or for some reason had just this very embedded sense of loyalty to the government. And so it's, it's really interesting to, to sort of see that, especially because we, I think we tend to think that government officials were well-paid and that there are these, you know, wealthy individuals. And that's certainly true of some of them. But the fact is that the salary of a colonial governor was absolutely abysmal. They did not have much incentive to police the pirates because pirates were bringing in significant amounts of money and commodities that not only benefited their colony, which made their you know inhabitants happy, but also benefited them personally, whether they were taking bribes or receiving parts of the goods for allowing it to be fenced in their colony. So I think that's probably the most interesting aspect of that part. And then the revolution section, there's individuals like James Fortin, who was one of the most influential privateers of the American Revolution and sort of set the stage for the involvement of either free or runaway enslaved Black men uh, participating in privateering as opposed to other ventures and, and sort of the freedom they felt that privateering gave them despite the danger, because even if they were a free black man, if they were captured by the, the, the British, they would be sold back into slavery. And, and that was true, even if they'd never been enslaved. So there was a lot of risk for, for black men to participate in this, but the fact that they opted to do it anyways, despite the fact that there was little to no benefit to them personally, I just found very inspiring and interesting. No, I think that is interesting. And I think that dichotomy you mentioned is interesting as well, because having these figures, having these stories like Lord Bellamont as well, are people who we can not necessarily always relate to, but people whose stories we want to find out mm -hmm. more. And actually, I think sometimes when depending on what area you're looking at we have court records or we have government records and it can feel very dry sometimes when you're mm -hmm. looking at it so actually to be able to untangle the complexities of these people a bit more and like you say people who could benefit either side and find out maybe why they wanted to take bribes was it just greed was there something else like you say if they're not well paid are they just looking for an opportunity to provide mm -hmm. more resources and the idea of you know good versus bad and corruption isn't always as clear as perhaps it might look so I, I think that's a really nice teaser actually in some 
way that you've got for your next book so we'll look forward to um picking that one as well <laughs> we'll have to make sure that we obviously tweak the hell out of it when um, the publication <laughs> date comes along because I'm sure you're again very much looking forward to having uh the copy of it in your hands as well yeah <laughs> to wave at people and be like hey guys <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today to have a chat about your book and your projects and processes of going through it because I'm hoping as well you know we've unpicked for some of our listeners some more of the hidden stories and figures that maybe we don't know about and again especially the stories that you've managed to untangle over that period so yeah would highly recommend that for like you said people looking for a digestible and accessible look at piracy in Chesapeake Bay over this period and I think people will be really excited for what they can uncover so again thank you for joining us and talking about your work oh thank you so much for having me I had such a great time